0: Welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Engel.
1: And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we'll be looking at Minute 91. It begins with Parker and Lambert gathering canisters and ends with Ripley saying, Jones?
0: And uh, uh, joining us for the new week of episodes is Mariah E. Gates. She is a social media specialist. Uh, How are you doing today, Mariah?
2: I'm good. How are you?
1: Doing very well. Well, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing right now, what you're working on?
2: Uh, what am I working on? I'm actually working on a biography of Joseph Cotton. That's my big project right now. But biographies take forever, so it'll probably, I'll be saying that for like 10 years. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm doing a research trip to Virginia in September, to his hometown. Is his
1: past well known?
2: Yeah, it's, it's he's, the Cottons are pretty well known, especially in Virginia, and um. He did do an autobiography, so there's um, a nice jumping off point. But you know, any anytime anyone's done tells their own story. There's always going to be gaps. So I'm hoping to like fill in places.
1: That sounds really interesting. Well, good luck. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Yeah, you know, right. I first uh, heard you
0: on the Battleship Retention podcast. Maybe it's been a couple of years ago now.
2: Oh, that was last year. It was.
0: I guess it was last year. Talking about a project you were doing last year, I'd kind of like to hear you, uh, have you tell the audience a little bit about that as well.
2: Yeah. uh, Last year, I spent the entire year only watching films directed by women. So that included uh, films in theaters, films that I watched at home, rewatching. So, like, I couldn't rewatch anything. I rewatched, at the beginning of the year, I said, with the exception of two things, or I guess three things uh, Groundhog Day. Because it's Groundhog Day. Um, November, because it was November 6, which is another thing that I do every year in November. And then the TCM Film Festival, because you can't really like dictate the film festival. But otherwise, everything I watched, including rewatches, were films uh, directed by women. It was a lot. I think I did 307 films, not counting rewatches.
1: Was there anything revelatory about looking at them as? as a whole? Is there a, sim? can you make some kind of a
2: generalization
1: you know, or is that too simplistic?
2: It, it, I can. And, and I think um it, it's, it's sort of something that you have to experience for yourself. though so it's hard to put into words, but the feel of films directed by women or the, the lack of that, like male gaze and that um hugely undefined female characters that you find throughout most of film and actually having like, a warmth towards women is, is really palpable. And I I tweeted about kind of missing a year with women a few months ago. And someone on Twitter was like, dude, I did it for two weeks and I could already feel the difference. And it's, it's hard to put it into words because it's not really something that's been defined prior to this. But if you, if you do it, if you cut out all films by men, it's sort of like when you cut out sugar and then your body feels so much better. It's, it's a very similar experience just because, this thing that's generally in the background isn't in the background anymore. It's like, it's, it's very clear and, um, peaceful.
1: Did you, (laughs) did you blog about every film?
2: I did video uh, reviews of every film. Yes. So if you go to my uh, YouTube channel, there is me talking for like, I think it's like three days worth of videos. (laughs) It's a lot.
1: Well, let's talk about the first time you saw Alien. Do you remember?
2: I know that I was very young. My dad was really into showing us films at an inappropriately young age. So we watched, like, the Critters movies when we were really young. And um, every pretty much anything having to do with aliens or science fiction, like, my dad was like, it's okay. We can watch it. Like, he took us to see Fire in the Sky when I think I was, like, six or seven. So... That tells you a lot about my childhood. So, we watched this probably, I'm assuming, right before the third one came out. It seems like what he would do, he'd probably have us watch those two. Cause I remember seeing the third one in theaters. So, I was probably really young. Um, And even before I had seen the film and knew what it was about during like bath time, my dad would get a wet washcloth and like wring it out so that it was just like damp and then like toss it at us like at our face and go alien in the face. And that was like our favorite game (laughs) during that time. So, and then I saw the movie when I got older and could really remember it. And I was like, I can't believe you used to do that when we were kids. Like, what were you thinking? And he was like, you guys liked it. (laughs) But you know, so mostly that's, I remember um, things like the alien in the face and, and the cat. I remember really enjoying the cat as a kid um but the film as a whole i didn't really um remember what like really remember it until i was older like probably middle school
0: and you've revisited when it uh times. yeah
2: i think i rewatched the whole thing right before i guess it was 11 um we rewatched them all again right before the winona writer one came out uh or right after i think that one didn't come to our theater we had to rent it and then I remember
1: the clones being really confusing. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of things are confusing about that one.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, let's just jump into this first minute. Um, and it's this whole segment, this whole five minutes, everything where we talk about this week is a pretty interesting collection of building moments and intercutting back and forth. But it, it does start out with the sort of beautiful lateral tracking shot as they, as Lambert and Parker gather stuff on this cart. And I, one of the things I noticed just about that shot was that. At the very end of it, there's a a disguised cut when something moves into the foreground, and then we move into the next space, and then the camera starts moving again out of that, and it's like the perfect same speed. I mean, it is really a beautifully... It's not particularly a masked cut because you do know that it's a cut and it does go to a static camera before it starts to move. But man, whoever that dolly grip was, he was on his game. He was doing it exactly perfectly from, you know, one shot to the next.
2: Yeah, what I really noticed um, was that in this moment, they're very small in the frame. And it sort of shows you just how, or it underscores how terrified they are and how small they are in this huge ship with this giant you know, creature stalking them. And so they're so small in the frame and everything else is so big and sort of crowding in on their, um, bodies. I found that very interesting because a lot of the shots in this film, um, the people really take up the whole frame and there's only a few moments really where they're like so tiny, like when they first get on the, this is way, way back, but when they first get on the, um, alien ship, on the planet, they're really tiny, and then right here, they're really tiny again.
1: And I think this is the room where Brett walks in and finds the the skin of the of the alien. So yeah. we know the alien's been in this space before, which is not exactly comforting.
0: Well, and we're mm-hmm. and we're back into this elevated production design too. We're in this when we talked about Brett entering this uh, landing claw uh, chamber. I guess is what we deduced it was. The production design suddenly becomes Otherworldly, where the rest of the Nostromo uh, has they've strived to make it uh, somewhat relatable to you know things that we know presently on Earth, submarines and airplanes and and so on. I I think that adds a little bit to the factor of their smallness as well, not only in the frame, but again they're out of their comfort zone even more so now. Yeah, and and they do feel like they're uh, they're scurrying. The way they're scurrying around uh, is is sort of reminiscent. I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching a little bit, reminiscent of Jones scurrying around earlier when uh, when uh, Brett was chasing her. So uh, you get this idea of the of this predator prey. The maybe we have a bit of a predatory uh, point of view with the camera and a little prey. You know the way that they're
1: framed and and the way they're acting in in the um, frame. You know another thing that I noticed too is that in both the first two cuts of this of this minute. The dual camera technique that he's using is really evident. And, and I was trying to figure out like what it is about the way that he shoots so many of these scenes when clearly there's a, a wide shot and then there's a closer shot covering the same action. And it, I was trying to figure out what it reminded me of. And I finally kind of realized that it reminds me of those Richard Lester movies that he would shoot with multiple cameras. Because what happens is you can only light from one angle. Now it's Now with digital, you can... You can light much more, three hundred and sixty degrees, and there's so much more latitude with what the cameras can do. But back then, you know, you've got a, you're locked into a particular film stock, and then you've got to light it a certain way, and you've got to be sure that two different lenses aren't aren't clashing with how much light gets let in. So it creates this weird kind of flatness, but it works really well, I think, in this movie, that because it it just it presses us into that action, and it feels you know, claustrophobic in a way. Once you go to those closer shots, the depth of field falls away and you're just kind of, you're kind of seeing the same thing, but you're, you you haven't really changed the angle. You've just moved us in closer. Yeah. As far as
0: the pacing with this moment with Lambert and Parker, Mitch, you mentioned the smooth tracking shot. For what they're doing here, I think it takes a little bit of time. Like you wouldn't expect a, a typically a movie, especially a movie made this, this, in this day and age, you wouldn't take so much time to show them piling canisters of air onto a uh, cart but is this not a bit of lulling us to sleep a uh, kind of a grasp at that at least we know you know when you're watching this what what they're in for especially like mariah mentioned with the way that they're framed in the shot it seems to me that they're doomed are they taking a little stab at maybe lulling us into a, a nice easy smooth shot nothing handheld nothing frantic so that we just take a break for a moment and maybe think for a second that they're going to be okay?
2: Well, I think you might think that until they start piling those canisters, and then it's so frantic and so loud. Like, the sound just goes so high. It's, like, very quiet while they're creeping, and then suddenly it's so loud. And at that point, you're like, there's no way. Like, why are they making so much noise? That's what I was feeling. I was like, if they were creeping, and maybe they were going to make it, they're definitely not going to make it now because they're making so much noise. Like, (laughs) yeah. if it was, like, you know, I we they haven't really figured out. They never really talk about how the alien senses, like, if if it has vision. Like, you don't know any of this, right? So creeping quietly in the dark, maybe that's a good thing. But making loud noises makes you always think that the, like, lion or killer or whatever it is that's stalking you can now hear you. I always assume any villain has good hearing unless otherwise told, think- you know?
0: that's a safe assumption i think that's you know just being on the safe side yeah i i always when i'm watching this scene the the entire you know lambert parker gathering canisters uh sequence here i always expect parker and maybe i miss it or something i always expect parker to tell her to be quiet like i always expect somebody to chime in and go man we should be quiet like let's be careful or something but they're just so i just think they're so panicked um,
2: they're so panicked and they're both not calm people through the no. whole film so they would be the people who would make a ton of noise um piling up canisters like brett i could imagine being a a, a quiet guy and you know ash for sure was a quiet dude but parker is always the one that's like running his mouth and, and um lambert is always you know basically saying why are we here let's get the hell out of here like that's those are their, their roles. So I feel like they're the least calm people.
1: Well, certainly the noise, the, the noise that they're making is really enhanced when we then cut to Ripley about 29 seconds into the scene, because it's very quiet where she is. I mean, she's, mm-hmm. And it's, and that camera remains sort of stable
2: I also noticed that that's as soon as they cut away from the two of them into back to Ridley, she takes up the whole camera frame again, and it's like you're really rooting for her. Like you can feel how tiny they are, and they're gonna die because they're tiny. And then you cut to Ripley, and you're like, no, she's she's in control of this situation. She's in control of this frame. She's gonna find that cat. She can get out of here. Like you, you really feel like she can do this.
1: And yet that scene's kind of pregnant with Menace at the very beginning because we're, we're behind her and there's you can't see anything into that space initially. The depth of field is so shallow that so all you see is her big in the frame and then just all of this nothingness beyond her. Uh, and finally, then we'll get to a wider shot where we actually begin to see the space that she's in. But even that is she She goes from being really big to suddenly being dwarfed by all of these pieces of equipment that are in the foreground, The those talking helmets that we saw at the beginning or whatever you want to call them. Um, and I feel scared for her when she's in that place.
0: I was going to mention, too, uh, right before they cut to Ripley, there's a bit of a camera movement. Parker and Lambert walk off frame, and the camera sort of tilts down a little bit to the cart that they've been pushing around. And it's out, of, it's, it's out of focus, it's real soft, it, they only hold on it for a split second, and I'd never really given it much thought until I was doing some research, reading the script and novelization, that it's holding on the tracking device for a moment, right before they cut away to Ripley. Mm-hmm. And it would be easy to miss, but um, in the script, and in the novelization, and the illustrated story, they have the tracking device, and they actually know that the alien is getting close. Uh so I mean we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but Lambert and and Parker don't get the, the alien doesn't exactly get the jump on them the way it does in this movie but I think it's a fun tease there without accentuating it too much without you know this like dun 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 moment like oh no the tracking
1: device is back there they're in trouble but I think it's it's there subtly for sure I never noticed that but that makes it makes total sense yeah. like they had the tracker before why isn't somebody manning that thing of course there's the matter of whether it actually would work in the <laughs>
0: yeah. in the movie it seems to be less functional than it is in the script. So They've given up on it. They, they just don't care. Yeah, they figure it's not going to help them at all. It's probably just weighing down the canisters to keep them from rolling off of the
2: cart at this point. It's a pretty large piece of equipment, too. I wouldn't feel like being you'd be able to carry that and like all the supplies they're trying to right. get together.
0: Well, Parker, he's manning the incinerator, right? Yeah. Standing guard. And that's why Lambert's the one running around uh, bashing, you know, canisters it around and everything It seems
2: like the opposite of what you would want them to do. I feel like I, anybody could use the the fire thing. What was it called? I'm sorry, fire incinerator, thing. fire flamethrower, or whatever. Yeah, like I feel like anybody could do the flamethrower, but like those canisters are probably pretty heavy.
0: Yeah, mm. it's a tough situation. You almost think that um, maybe maybe Ripley would have been better to go with <laughs> with Parker.
2: Which brings me to my like final note on this minute is why is Ripley so dead set on saving Jones? What is her stake <laughs> with Jones?
0: <laughs> this is an ongoing topic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, I was going to say just really quickly, I think that the, she has to go to the bridge. I think she's the only one that knows how to, to do all this stuff, probably. Being executive, she's yeah. third in command, You know, having executive uh, capabilities and so on. But then as far as the Jones thing, Mariah, there's been, we've been talking about it since the beginning of the show and the publicity for the movie, they, they, they went to great lengths to apparently to show Ripley as some kind of a cat lady, like almost <laughs> so many of the promotional f- photos, the stills are of her holding Jones, smiling with Jones. Mm. And they even have little, you know, blurbs about she, she always has the cat at her side, you know? And it's funny because, you know, you watch the movie, you don't really get that impression but it is, no. a, it is a really good question. Why is she so dead set on finding Jones here? And I'll go back to the script again in the novelization and the illustrated story, Even all of them have her immediately finding Jones. It's, it's a happenstance. She doesn't search for Jones. Jones appears and the line is, well, it's your lucky day, Jones. We're about to leave. So she wasn't going to take Jones. <laughs> she didn't care at all. In the early version. So this is a, this seems to be a Ridley Scott thing. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's really...
2: So maybe he's really... Crazy
0: Catman then. We can talk more about this probably in these upcoming months this week, but definitely later. I think he had these little things he wanted to insert, uh, ideas he had on the fly to cover for other things. And then in this case, honestly, sometimes I think that he is doing... I, I, I'm not trying to disparage him at, at this point, but there's some little film school things. Like... Oh, well, Ripley, we need make sure Ripley is the, we're rooting for so she's the one that, that pets the cat. I mean, is that what saved the cat well, is happening here?
2: basically saved the cat, yeah, yeah that's true.
0: Which but to me is unnecessary. I mean, I don't have anything against this. When I watch the movie, it doesn't bother me. But uh, when you stop and ask the question about it, it does make you, all I can come up with, Mitch, unless you have something, I all I can come up with is save the cat. Do you have another reading of it?
1: Well, I just think that when the movie first came out, I remember people, I just still remember people. Anytime anybody watches this movie for the first time, they're like, I can't believe she went back for that cat. Yeah. Like everybody, I don't hear anybody say, I am so glad she went back for that cat, you know? So it's a very perverse position to take. It's kind of cynical. You wonder whether this is a sort of by the numbers move that they're making, that Ridley Scott has made a choice to do that. You wonder whether the crazy cat lady stuff was to get out ahead of this idea because it is for me one of the groaners in the movie one of the things that that i just always struggle with now
2: would it be as weird if it was a dog
1: i was going to just people
2: are people (laughs) are always upset when dogs die in movies Mm -hmm. it's like if she saved a dog would you be like of course she went back for the dog it's a dog is it because it's a cat like i'm that's i'm generally curious
0: i was just going to ask the exact same question and uh There's a certain podcaster, Mariah, that both of us know, who I won't name, but he'll know exactly who I'm talking about, that is probably laughing right now because he is one of those people he said many times that the death of a dog is worse than the death of a human in a movie, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. um, There are people out there that feel that way, but nobody feels that way about a cat. It's like Jurassic Um, Park 2, right?
2: Like, all those people die, and the only death anyone cares about in Jurassic Park 2 is when the T-Rex eats the dog. Right. You know, and it's like, why'd they add that moment?
1: Right. So is it perverse? Is it leaning into the fact that there was always a cat in the scripts anyway?
2: Well, I think it's, I think having a cat is interesting because they're a ship and, you know, there's this whole thing with cats and rats on ships and there are always cats on ships. Um, And it sort of makes sense on a boat, like a, you know, seafaring vessel, but in space it's like. I I in, the, in a sea-faring, seafaring vessel, I can understand where the cat's waist goes because there's rats, and I'm sure there was like some hole somewhere where the cat went and pooped. But on the spaceship, where is the cat pooping? I don't understand. It's, I know that, that that doesn't really tie into what we're talking about, but that's I kept thinking about that.
0: You're not the first I,
2: one. <laughs> you know, I just emptied my cat's litter box, so that's where my mind is. Like, Maybe Ripley is invested in the cat because she was in charge of emptying the litter box. I don't know.
1: There's so many grungy, grimy <laughs> places on that ship. I mean, oh, there's-, <laughs> there's, there's probably litter boxes everywhere. If even yeah. litter boxes, there's maybe just cat poop everywhere.
0: I think there's space. There's space litter. I'm I'm pretty sure we've we've talked about this before that there's the stock the stock room is full of gum, cigarettes, and cat litter. Like that's yeah. the, the main. Items in there. Yeah. Storage facility. So,
1: well, there's a cynicism about this whole five minutes that I struggle with. Like, I suppose that if I had to say what are my least favorite five minutes of the movie, it's this section, because there's a lot of different things that I want to kind of point out that I always have trouble with. And you feel a little bit like there's a lot of gears turning, a lot of storytelling machinery being moved around in this section where there have been other places in the film where it feels pretty effortless and you feel like you're in the hands of a kind of an invisible storyteller. But even the fact that after we go with Ripley in the bridge for the first time, before the cat jumps out, we get a really violent cut 43 seconds in with the canisters clanging really loudly, right. clearly an effort to spook us, to make us jump. And that in some ways, combined with this whole cat business, makes this segment of the movie feel a little cynical to me. Well, since I guess the the cat scares
0: in the next minute, Mitch, we might as well move on with that. Yeah, that sounds fine to me. Do you have anything else, Mariah?
2: Uh, that, that was pretty much all my notes.
0: Well, that's going to do it for minute number 91. Uh, Mariah, you want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet?
2: Uh, pretty much anywhere where you find the, the um, handle Old Films Flickr, um, completely spelled out, not like the photo sharing service. Um, that's probably me on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram. My YouTube where the uh video reviews are is uh coffee and movies because I came up with the YouTube before I came up with all the rest. <laughs> so it doesn't quite fit in, but right. still me.
0: Okay. Well, uh you can find us of course at alienminute.com or at alien minute pod on Twitter. Uh follow us on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcast. Uh, you could also come over to our Facebook page and talk with us. So we get a lot of good discussions going on over there. Make sure to visit our T Public site and get some T-shirts and mugs and things with Alien Minute logo on it. All right, everyone. Well, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number ninety-two.